Hello, this is Graham Brown, Senior Vice President and Principal with NextGen Advisors. Welcome to Ambulatory Healthcare Today, our podcast hosted by the NextGen Advisors. With me today to discuss the resurgence of the small practice in the United States is my colleague, Dr. Marty Lustig. Welcome, Marty. Thanks, Graham. Marty, last week, NextGen Healthcare was awarded Best in Class for Small Practice, Electronic Medical Record, and practice management platforms. I know this got you thinking about the future of small practices. To me, on first blush, that future kind of looks bleak. Uh, There's been such a huge trend toward uh, moving away from small physician-owned practices to large practices where a lot of the clinicians are employed. And in my experience, that's been happening for over a decade. The 2020 American Medical Association Physician Survey looks at employment of physicians, and that revealed that physicians have finally surpassed the 50% mark for the first time. Uh, More than half of them are now employed. At the same time, that same survey reported a 12.5% drop since 2012 in the percentage of physicians in small group practice. So to me, it feels like there's a a shift happening here, but what what do you make of those numbers? So I... I I think there is a shift, and I think there are several sort of mega forces that are that have been driving that shift. One of them is the increasing complexity of contracting with payers for providers and the financial risk that's connected to that complexity with value-based payments and different types of incentives. I think that's one big force that's made it hard for small practices. A second one that sort of goes along with that are the administrative and regulatory complexity that has been constantly increasing, that's hard to keep up with without dedicated resources. And the third one, I think, is also sometimes sort of underappreciated is the generational shift in the career trajectory of physicians Uh, who in today's world really are looking for a level of balance between work and their personal life that didn't exist 30, 40 years ago. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think those forces come together and have really driven providers into large employed situations where they have more predictability, uh, less administrative complexity. So those those are actually very practical and very real forces that I, I totally agree. I think providers are absolutely experiencing, not just on a day-to-day basis, but cumulatively over time, they're getting kind of more and more oppressive, those forces. And uh, then the generational element, I think there is a real shift in how folks want that work and life balance and what they're looking for from their careers. So on one hand, you know, According to the AMA, over half of today's uh, practicing physicians are, are still in small practices. Um, so there's the counter side to this movement. Um, what do you think is keeping them there? What's, what's keeping physicians in those independent practices? Okay, so we probably should note in this that uh, you mentioned the generational shift, uh, that there clearly is a, a difference by age groups and that the the same survey shows that those who are in the smaller practices tend to be the older physicians. But I do think there are some, just as there are forces that are causing this shift away from small practice, there are some pretty powerful forces 
that have kept so many people in that environment. I think based on both training and personal values, the uh, ability to have a small practice where you, uh, as the physician, completely own your relationship with your patients and you have a physically small setting that reinforces the intimacy of a uh, of the relationships that you're trying to build with your patients uh, that it can't be uh, overemphasized. And along with that is the autonomy that has historically been a major attribute of a career in medicine that you could get your training and you can go off into the world wherever you wanted to live and just set out a sign and start taking care of patients. So that combination of intimacy and autonomy are still powerful forces within the profession. Uh, and I think we see that in the numbers. Mm -hmm. You you wrote about this in the past week. And uh, for our listeners, there's a really great blog uh, by Dr. Lustig that you can find at nextgen.com forward slash blog um, that talks about this kind of changing landscape. And one of the things that I thought was uh, interesting about that is how we might kind of go about halting this decline in that shift. Um, and ultimately, there may even be a renaissance in terms of the ability of providers today to continue to practice independently. So talk a little bit about what those forces are and how you think there's a movement potentially to sustain independent practice. Yeah. So for me, there are four uh, fundamental uh, shifting sands in the landscape that could drive uh, a rebirth of small practices. The first one is really almost complete, and that is having an electronic medical record as the foundation of your practice. In the last decade, I think we're now pushing 90% of physicians in practice, even in small practice, are working from an electronic medical record. And certainly along with that, we've seen with the pandemic, a rise in the number that are providing virtual services and have mobile tools. So we're starting to see, even in smaller practices, a level of flexibility created by having that electronic infrastructure. Along with that, regulatory changes uh, combining with the clinical need, we, we're seeing a dramatic increase in interoperability. And based on the regulatory shifts, uh, there's every reason to expect that interoperability will become a standard so that even in a small practice, you see you, you will have access to all the relevant clinical information on your patient no matter where in the healthcare system it's generated. A third component for me is price transparency. Uh, and it's clear that there are regulatory changes and that CMS has been driving a move in this direction for both providers and health plans. And price transparency sort of combined with interoperability gives anyone, including physicians in small practice, the insights to drive uh, their patients to the least costly, most effective services that complement their own to ensure their patients can get the best outcomes uh, and not waste uh, resources. The fourth one for me is uh, one that I uh, care about deeply, but is at this point, I think, as much of a hope as it is a prediction, uh, and that is the move away from the type of process 
quality measures that are being used in uh, in healthcare to patient reported outcomes as the foundation of how we understand quality of care. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe if those four forces come to fruition as they appear, that there's a good chance they will, that that will support uh, small practices in a way that will strengthen their position. Um, so, so these four forces, I understand from where you're coming from around how that's kind of creating the, the environment around providers uh, that maybe makes it easier for them to operate independently. But talk about how it kind of specifically is going to impact them. What, what's changing in their day-to-day lives that means they're not going to necessarily rush to an employment model? What's, what's, how are these forces uh, specifically impacting their ability to continue independently? Right. So, so one of the, a couple of the forces I talked about that are driving people out of it are the complexity uh, and risk associated with their contracting arrangements and the regulations, the administrative functions, all of that. With an electronic infrastructure, the ability to buy uh, services on the margin that connect to your electronic infrastructure. A simple example is revenue cycle management. If you've got a fully electronic infrastructure such as NextGen's, you can get their revenue cycle management services and you don't have to worry about keeping up with the ever-changing billing rules that are occurring in your payer environment. And I think as interoperability becomes even more of a realization that the, the ability to integrate services uh, that you don't want to have to focus on yourself will enable small practices for those clinicians to focus on taking care of their patients and allow wraparound services that are connected to them electronically to meet their uh, the other needs of the practice. Mm-hmm. Um, you combine that with the flexibility of having mobile capabilities so that they don't always have to be in the office to take care of their patients. That's very responsive to this big issue of work-life balance. If you can have a small practice with the intimacy and still have the flexibility to drive balance in your life, it's another reason not to have to go uh, to an employed environment. And if you have transparency of on both cost and you have knowledge of all of the outcomes from patient-reported outcomes, then you're well-positioned as a small practice to drive your patients to uh, the best places for their care and therefore demonstrate to payers how you can be a high-value provider as well as understand who else, where the value lies elsewhere in the system. Mm-hmm. You can become a very effective component of a value-based delivery system as a small practice if you have all of these attributes in place. And by the way, you can preserve your desire to have intimate relationships in a small environment with your patients at the same time. The the element that you just described around the ability to kind of drive value and demonstrate value, to me, if you're not within an employed model, being able to benchmark yourself and understand how effective your practice is um, versus the uh, other providers that are maybe providing the same clinical care or, or type of specialty services that you're providing. Do, do you think this is going to therefore mean that 
Um, independent practices need to be affiliated with independent practice association or a clinically integrated network. They may not be employed, but they can see the performance of other providers in their community and understand where they stand within that. Or do you think payers are going to evolve to a place where there really is transparency and they're sharing that information across the community? I think uh, I, I think both are true, actually. I think the transparency is going to come. It's going to be forced by the government. And I think personally think that's a good thing. Uh, um, but at the same time, the challenge that will not go away for small practices is what the insurance companies call credibility of their population they serve. You need a certain number of patients in order for any measures, financials or otherwise, to be valid and reliable and, as the insurance industry calls them, credible. And in order to do that, there will have to be, small practices will have to associate with each other in some way. And IPA is actually, as you know, an easy, relatively easy way to do that. But it does allow small independent practices to stay small and independent that doesn't mean that they don't have relationships with the other practices in the region where they practice, where they are. Well, and certainly in, in the work I've been doing over the past decade or so, that ability for providers to maintain their independence by keeping or developing an affiliation with a, with a network of providers gives them a lot of that flexibility and also an understanding of what's going on around them. And helps them identify also, to your point before, who are the lowest cost and most accessible providers within their market that they should be making referrals to uh, and really coordinating the care with on behalf of their patients um, because they recognize that they're uh, effective providers uh, as well and are going to help all boats rise together here. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it today, for a, a, just a simple example with a primary care provider who needs to refer a patient for sinus surgery. Currently, they have no idea what the outcomes are for the patients, you know, percent of patients that have complications or how patients are feeling six months after their surgery. They go to one surgeon versus another in their community. And the other thing that they don't understand is whatever surgeon they go to, that surgeon may actually do their procedures at two different locations. And the cost of the procedure may be 50 to 100% higher at one location than the other. And the referring primary care doctor doesn't have any of that information today. Mm. But the power of knowing both outcomes and costs ahead of time really places that trusted caregiver, who's the primary care provider, in a great position to guide their patients to the right place. Yeah. You know, you think of these uh, these factors um, acting together here. You really can undersee how or understand how they might overcome some of those forces that have been driving physicians into uh, employment models or into larger practices. And ultimately, to your other point, if they can really leverage some of the wraparound services that aren't core to their operations or their knowledge in terms of providing great customer and uh, patient care and have those administrative functions handled by uh, a large organization or a vendor, that really is going to help um, support them maintain that independence. Well, thanks very much, Dr. Marty Lustig, for your thoughtful comments on this topic. And thanks to our listeners for joining us for this episode of Ambulatory Healthcare Today. This is Graham Brown with NextGen Advisors. 
Thank you and have a great day.